Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. As Hillary Clinton hits the talk show circuit to talk about what happened to her in the 2016 presidential election, I turn to Howard Dean, former governor of Vermont, former chairman of the Democratic Party, to talk about the party's future and that of the Republican Party. There's no leadership at all in the Republican Party, none, zero. It's all, they're all terrified of their monsters that they've created, uh, which relies on xenophobia and racism and all these other uh, unpleasant isms. Dean doesn't hold back on anything. Hear what he has to say right now. Governor Dean, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Nice to be on. Thanks. All right. So you're former governor of Vermont, uh, former chairman of the Democratic National Committee. As a Democrat, from your perspective, what the hell happened in 2016? Uh, well, uh, we don't know entirely because the Russian hacking uh, investigation is not complete. But I, I would say that it's similar to what happened in England with the Brexit vote. Uh, we had a, a nativist uh, appeal to people who have been left behind by globalization. Obviously, race and culture changes have had a lot to do with this. So you, I think you saw the equivalent of the French Revolution, except fortunately nobody went to the guillotine. I want to pick up on you, what you said about nativist appeals to the folks who felt left behind. One of the things that I find fascinating is, you know, the whole conversation turned into, well, it's all about the white working class. And for me and a lot of other people, we sort of chafe at that phrasing because it sort of negates the fact or ignores the fact that there are working class people of color who have the same concerns and yet they didn't go um, for Donald Trump in the way that white voters went for Donald Trump. Why do, why do you think that happened? Well, I think Trump deliberately played the race card as often as he could, right out of the box with Mexicans and rapists and all this kind of business. Um, I mean, he, he dog-whistled race in, in the most effective way since uh, George Wallace. Yeah, it's like more like a bullhorn. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty shocking, really. And I think really accounts for why Trump is such a polarizing figure. I mean, he, he still has great numbers uh, among the Republican base, but the Republican base is pretty small. And his numbers among independents are appalling, because I think independents are frankly appalled by the kind of uh, person he is. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I look at the coverage of, of the president, of President Trump, and um, a lot of people keep saying, and, and he's, he's doing it by his actions, He's playing to his base. He's, he's energizing his base. And as you point out, his base is shrinking, and yet he's still able to hold Congress uh, in, in his sway and get them to do whatever it is he wants to do, depending on the hour of the day. Because I can't quite figure out if there's a strategy. Well, I, actually, I'm not. Uh, I think there's two factors that uh -huh. are in place there. First of all, I actually don't think he can hold Congress. Congress hasn't done anything, and that's because Trump is a, a, a incredibly erratic uh, and knows nothing about politics or policy and doesn't care. Uh, and the second thing, problem is this has been building in the, for a very long time in the Republican Party. Um, the Republican Party it has really been dog-whistling race for a very long time. Mm -hmm. This has been going on since the 90s, and they have become especially 
you know, they're sort of victims of their own gerrymandering in the sense that they, they've moved further and further to the right and further and further out of the mainstream of where most Americans are. And so I think that one of the problems in the paralysis of Congress has to do with the Republicans just being completely afraid of their own base. Uh, there's no leadership over there. Leadership is leadership in the ultimate is telling your own people that they have to do something they don't want to do. Uh, that was Sadat. That was uh, Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, you know, great leadership is fairly rare. Abraham Lincoln, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no leadership at all in the Republican Party. None. Zero. It's all they're all terrified of their monster that they've created, uh, which relies on xenophobia and racism and all these other uh, unpleasant isms. So let's let's move away from the Republican Party and, le- and let's talk about the Democratic Party, something you know intimately as being the former chair of the party. Where, I- where is the Democratic Party right now from your perspective? No place. Um, here's our big problem. Uh, our problem is that our core base now uh, the most reliable demographic of our voters uh, are the young people uh, across the board, across uh, racial and ethnic lines. Uh, we get about 50, Hillary got 58% of young Americans under 35. Obama did better. In fact, Obama did so well that it was the only election in my lifetime in 2008 where more people under 35 voted than over 65. That was their first president. Our problem is that these people are not Democrats. They are very independent-minded. Uh, they don't like politics, and they mistrust institutions and think they don't need them because they never have needed them in their lives. They're able to go online and get half a million people to agree to boycott some company because they have bad consumer policies, and the companies cave in, including places like Verizon and Bank of America. So with that kind of power, why would you need to organize into an institution? But they're going to have to, and I think the I think the Trump election was a wake-up call because the Trump election was essentially a negation of every value that young people have in this country. They value inclusion, they value diversity, they value women's rights, and they value the environment greatly. Uh, climate change is, is a huge issue for them, and so Trump comes along and basically kicks them right in the butt and says, "We don't want you." Well, this, this is the next. This is the future of America. So the, I I think our problem is, as Democrats is. We're the head of the oldest party in the West, and this party is an institution that looks incredibly unattractive, not because of our ideology, because that is attractive, and that's why they always vote for Democrats. But the Democratic Party means nothing to them, because it's an institution built by people like me, who's 40 years older than them, and they are going to have to build their own institution. It's going to look different. You know, that's interesting that you say that the party looks like you, meaning older, uh, and that you're (laughs) decades, as am I, older than they are. And yet a lot of young people swarmed to Bernie Sanders. So age isn't the issue, is it? No, uh, no, age is not so much the issue, uh, although I think the pattern of thinking is. And I actually don't think Bernie thinks like a young person. But what is the attractive part, and the reason they you know, were very attracted by my campaign and by Obama's campaign, is that we, well, for Obama it was different. Obama was the first multicultural president, mm-hmm. and these uh, folks believe that they're the first multicultural generation, which I think is true. Um, but what Bernie and I had in common is we both basically said what we thought, uh, which was not popular at the time, and it's become 
much more popular as time has gone on. I wanted to end uh, the Iraq war and get out because I thought we'd been lied to on the way in. And Bernie uh, wanted a an economy that was going to work for everybody and not just at the few people at the top, which has been a problem in the United States and the West, for that matter, for 30 years or longer. So I think it was the way we spoke, not the, our age or our ideology, uh, the way we were unafraid to confront the establishment that attracted young people, and that always attracts young people. You know, you raise an, um, uh, an interesting question, which is, does, does the party have a policy problem going forward? Or does no. it have a messaging problem going forward? We have a messaging problem, and we have a mechanical problem. We don't really know how to touch these folks. Uh, and the politics, you know, the problem is the DNC is an inside-the-beltway organization. Uh, and the problem is that the inside-the-beltway has very little to do with what goes on outside the beltway. They just don't get regular how regular people live. And they, they craft these messages, and the messages don't go anywhere. And so that's a, that's an enormous problem. There's a huge disconnect between the way young people in America think and our generation thinks. And we've got to close that disconnect. I'm in favor of letting the young people figure out how to close it and not having us superimpose some, some, some solution we think is going to work because it hasn't. But that means then, so a moment ago you just said, and I agree, that, you know, the problem is that um, young folks, they're not, they're not Democrats. They're not beholden to a party. They don't believe in the institution of, of a party. So how would handing over the reins of the party to young people going to help the party? Because they get uh, how to negotiate that gap. The gap is going to have to be closed and negotiated. The Democratic Party is not going to wither away and disappear. It's just too complicated to try to run a third party or a fourth or a fifth party in this country with any meaningful results. It's been tried a dozen times and only one success, which is Abraham Lincoln, as all the parties were collapsing in the onset of the Civil War. So we just have to change the way it's not so much we have to change what we believe although i do believe this generation is more libertarian the republicans had a shot at these guys because they these young folks are libertarian economically but the republicans are so cast in racism and anti-feminism and all these other things that these young folks value that um i think the republicans are done with trump i mean trump stands for the republican party i think the republicans are done in my generation they're going to have to do that hope they do better in the next one and daca hasn't helped them any yeah um but but our generation is not done our generation stuffles, uh, suffers from an inability to communicate with young people on their own terms you know so bernie sanders um is from the the older generation that was able to talk to young people uh, in in ways that energized them, but he's not a Democrat, and that's the thing that 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 just drives me absolutely crazy. That you have this person who's not a Democrat dictating to the Democratic Party what it should and shouldn't stand for. Should Democrats? stand for him coming into their house and dictating the interior design of their own house without well, the joining? Truth, the truth is he prefers not to have the label as a Democrat, but he just ran as a Democrat. And if he runs again, he'll run as a Democrat because it's impossible to make a meaningful contribution as a member of the third party unless you just want to be a, a flamethrower and, and move people in your direction. And he also knows that a third party candidacy of, of the kind he would put on, which would be fairly successful, but would not win, 
would uh, would ensure more right wingers in the White House, and I think that's not what he wants. So you know, Bernie can call himself whatever he wants, but functionally, he is a Democrat. He just you know, Bernie's an interesting guy, and he's really an A. He's an iconoclast, and B. He's he's an independent. He's a truly independent-minded person that doesn't want to deal with institutions, which actually gives him some some uh, cachet with young people because that's the way they are. The problem is Bernie's also a a centralist. That is, he comes from the, the, the old left, which basically did believe in top-down power to reform. So, uh, you know, there is a disconnect in governance there if, if he gets there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I consider Bernie to be a Democrat. He claims he's not a Democratic Party member. It drives everybody crazy. Yeah. I would let the, voter, I would drive, let the voters sort that out. I don't know, Governor. (laughs) After the last campaign and watching what he's done since the campaign, you know, I'm still still a little irate that you have this person who is wagging his finger uh, at a party that he doesn't see fit. He doesn't see fit to join, but feels he would he he would be like that anyway. (laughs) I know, but you know, I tell you, I tell you what he did here in Vermont, which was a hoot. So he wins. You know, he's a terrific politician. He wins. Uh, the mayorship, uh, and then he won't run as a progressive. And now the progressives won everything in Burlington, partly because of him. Um, but that was his. That was, was his supporters. Those are the ones that engineered his win. He wouldn't join them. He has never run as a member of a party, and it's not just being about Democrats. He wouldn't run as a member of a progressive party. He, he just likes to do his own thing, and he doesn't fundamentally think that parties work. I, now, I actually don't think you can actually govern long-term without a party. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, I, I just think, I think we, we should not get irate about Bernie wagging his finger at the Democratic Party. I'm sure there have been Democrats who wag their finger at the Democratic Party. Um, you know, enough already. Well, let's just let's throw it all out there and do this on its merits. And who cares if he's in the Democratic Party or okay, not? Okay, I'm just going to say... Gonna be, he's not going to be... Look, I've lived this for 40 years. <laughs> and nobody else has. Just get. I, I just say, get over it and get used to it. That's the way it is. <laughs> that is that is a very good point, Governor. Um, but I'm just going to say this one last thing. Um, I would rather have Senator Elizabeth Warren wagging her finger at me from the progressive end of the Democratic Party than to have uh, Senator Bernie Sanders from outside of the Democratic Party wagging his finger at me about what the Democratic Party should do. But moving right along, one of the, another uh, podcast guest that we've had um, is the pollster Cornell Belcher. Uh, and, sure. and he and our and our dear friend Karen uh, Karen Hunter, my old colleague Karen at the Daily Finney. News, Karen Finney, uh, who um, was your your communications director when you were uh, at the DNC. And, and Cornell was my pollster when I was running the DNC. And so, so he did these focus groups um, of millennials of color, and everything you just said about millennials and not being beholden to a party was borne out by what those folks told him but because they were young people they were millennials of color it was more striking and what cornell and karen came away with from those focus groups was that that group of young people millennials of color they are the new swing voter that the democratic party if it wants to succeed in 18 20 22 24 that they must focus on those voters and stop focusing on the white working class voters. What do you think of that? Well, 
you know, I don't think we can focus on any group of voters, uh, including white working class voters, uh, if what's driving them is race. And I think it is in a lot of cases in the white working class. So because this party is about inclusion and this party is about a comprehensive vision of America, we're about hope that things are going to get better, not a wish to go back to the 1840s. <laughs> so um, I would say that was true, that we have got to, I believe, it, look, if, if everyone were to vote in this country in every election, we, the Democrats would win every election, uh, virtually every election, uh, which is why, of course, the, Demo- the Republicans engage in voter suppression and have people like Chris Kobach heading presidential commissions. You're right. Or the second in command or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, of course we have to worry about uh, millennials of color. I call them first globals, uh, but not millennials. But we have to worry. We do, because they're an essential part of our coalition. So what does the, the, the Democratic Party have to do? Let's fast forward to, um, well, actually, not, fa- not fast forward to 2020, which is what I was going to say. Let's fast forward a year and a couple months from now, uh, right. 2018, the midterm elections, which actually is, I think, even more important than 2020 right now. What does the Democratic Party need to do to ensure that Democrats get out and vote? Well, what we're relying on, those of us who are working with Onward Together, uh, is getting the groups that already have a proven track record in the field, uh, indivisible, uh, run for something, Color of Change, Voto Latino, uh, is a bunch of groups like Flippable, uh, to focus, uh, do what they're already doing well. They're the ones that did the airport protest, mm-hmm. the Women's March. They know how to get people out, and we need to let them get those folks out on their own terms, but then we need to see if they can work together and cooperate. In other words, this is, they, they've been cooperating. The problem is cooperation with commitment, and that's the real problem is the commitment part. But I think for 2018, our best bet is to let all the young people who do organizing incredibly well do it, support them when they do it, but see if there are ways of institutionalizing that cooperation on their terms, uh, not ours. And I'm sitting here thinking, you mentioned all those groups. What role does the, the Democratic National Committee have to play? Should it be support player or should it be lead actor? Well, it's not going to be the lead actor because there's not a particular attraction between first global voters and the Democratic National Committee. The most important function of the Democratic National Committee is to have a decent database, which was basically eroded uh, very badly uh, during the Obama years. Um, And that needs to be completely fixed up and spruced up, and this generation knows how to do that, and the DNC has a very, very good uh, chief technology officer. Now they, he needs to be able to get some money uh, and needs non-interference by all the political forces. They're going to want the database done their way. Uh, so that's the most important function of the DNC, as I see it, uh, in, in terms of um, the next election. You know, I was one of those people, and I've said this many times on the podcast, that I was very skeptical um, after the election but before the inauguration that all of the anger that I was seeing um, on television, on hearing on radio, on, on my Facebook feed, Twitter feed, that all that anger would actually manifest itself into sustained sort of activism on the part of Democrats, liberals, the left. 
And then the Women's March happened. The airport protests happened. There was a, a spontaneous demonstration here in Washington the following weekend, the third weekend after the Trump inauguration that gave me some hope that the energy and enthusiasm and activism that's been ignited on the left, thanks to uh, President Trump, that it actually can sustain itself. And now here we are, what are we now? What is this? Eight, nine, <laughs> nine months in to the Trump presidency, and I'm still kind of hopeful that all of that energy will maintain itself for another year. Do you hold or have that same level of, what's the word I'm looking for, optimism that yeah. the level of energy that we're seeing now will march its way from the streets into the voting booth in 2018? I'll tell you why I have this. I, I do think that history repeats, although it's on a spiral. I think Trump's election was the Edmund Pettus Bridge or Kent State for those kids. I, real, I think for the first time they understood that their lives were in danger. And I don't mean they're going to get shot, because I think the 60s was much more violent and the stakes in some ways were much more desperate for the country. But this is their way of life. They're, this is the first time after 18 or 20 or 30, however old they are, years of life, that they believe that their ideals could be destroyed. They could see, they see in Trump the destruction of the United States as they have been taught that it was going to exist. That is what at stake, and I do not think that their enthusiasm for preserving the country they thought they were inheriting uh, is going to diminish in any way in the next few years. Governor Howard Dean, former governor of Vermont, former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, and dear friend, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.